0: So beautiful here, and it's certainly not flat, hot Florida. And for that, I'm very thankful. Uh, Nicole is here with me today. I've been without her uh, presence near me, although I'm very thankful for FaceTime and Skype um, for the last three weeks or so. And so, picked her up from the airport yesterday, and uh, gosh, that was awesome. So, uh, it's great to be with uh, Jeff and Jody and um, their wonderful family. Every day is watching Maisie's brilliance on some kind of court or field of play. Cannon asking deep and probing questions. Um, Rio just playing with my mind. And... Roby saying she loves me and it melts my heart every time. So it's good to be here. It's good to be with you. It's good to have Nicole with me. Please say hello to her and hug her at the end of the service. And it's good to be continuing this series that uh, your community, uh, our community now, is going through in the book of Matthew. If you haven't had the chance to listen to Jody's sermon talk last week, you should check that out. And uh, I've been really happy to hear her and Jeff and so we want to continue with that today I don't want to be too long-winded I know we've got holidays some of us are already baking in anticipation for the hallowed Thanksgiving coming upon us but before we turn to today's passage perhaps a prayer would be appropriate uh, at this time so if you will if you'll just bow your hearts with me Lord we gather together to learn to grow and to change Help us to move into a deeper understanding of your truth. We lay our lives down before you and ask that you would move amongst us. May we all feel safe with each other. Safe to think and question. Safe to ask for help. And safe to share our lives with you. Our loving Heavenly Father. Amen. Well, we're continuing in the book of Matthew, and today we are finishing up chapter 12. And so uh, we have a few verses to discuss. Matthew twelve forty six through 50, if you'll turn in your Bibles or give your attention to the screen. Uh, Jesus is finishing a rather lengthy discourse here. He's talking about some rather serious things, and he's upsetting quite a few people. And it's at this time... Uh, Matthew recounts to us while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? <clears throat> Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. Now, first of all, Galilee must not be southern. Uh, My mom would have slapped me pretty quick if I didn't come and talk to her. (laughs) And so for some of us, this is a really interesting passage. And uh, it may cause us to... To Scratch our heads a little bit, because this passage asks us to grapple with serious and fundamental issues of identity, what compromises what makes up what constitutes the institution of family? Who is my family? Who are my families? Uh, how do I navigate between them? I mean I, I have my family that I was born into with my mother, my father. My sister, Jennifer, now, my mom's passed away, and then I had another stepmom, or a or first stepmom. She passed away. Now my wife, uh, my, my dad, man, I've got all kinds of Freud issues going on here. Uh, it's good to see you, babe. It's been a while. Uh, <laughs> we edit this stuff before my dad listens to it, right? Uh, but now he has a third wife. Each of those is a constitution of who my family is or has been at a certain time. People come and go as different cousins and siblings take on partners or spouses. Uh, This was especially confusing for my family as my uh, mother's mother was married 13 times. Uh, my aunts were married nine and five times respectively. My sister's been married five times. So you can see that Thanksgiving is like a revolving door around my house. It's, uh, so how do I navigate between these families? And then not only is there my biological family, but there is my family. Uh, those people in my life, the Jeffs and Jodies of this world who are as close as my biological siblings or cousins or whatnot. So what does it mean to be a part of a family? Jesus is certainly kind of messing with our minds here as he is saying, I don't need to go out to the door. Those people who listen and do the will of my father, these are my brothers and sisters and mother. This passage also comes to us at an interesting time after a heated and contentious political election that has thrust our philosophical and social differences into the spotlight. And it's on the Sunday before a holiday that we'll find many of us gathering together with our friends and families for a time centered upon thankfulness when so many in our country are conflicted on what to be thankful for and should they be thankful. And so while my prayer is that we would all enjoy a harmonious, warm, celebratory time of food and fellowship and football, Roll Tide, sorry for that. Uh, I know, right? uh, This coming weekend has all the potential for strife and contention and relational fracture. So what do we do? What do we do with this passage? What is it asking of us and how can we respond appropriately given this particular point in time? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to turn our attention to the question of what institutes or constitutes this institution of a family. Jesus here uh, is responding in a curious manner for those present at the time. And for many of us who are reading presently, Uh, countering this, we scratch our heads. But it should, however, not come as a surprise for those of us who are familiar with his public ministry. Now, I don't want to get too in-depth on this matter, although I am available for a coffee or a beer later at any time you want so that we can talk further. But what Jesus is doing here is what Jesus did from the very beginning of his ministry, which is to expand the scope of the good news and of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. How do we look at this? Well, think about this. Judaism was a religion whose roots could be traced back to a nation, a tribe, a family, and even a person. Father Abraham and many sons. And while we see Yahweh's desire to have all of creation come to reconciliation and restoration. Think about that calling of Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to bless you. But part B of that verse says, so that you may be a blessing to all nations. If we not only look at that part, but we move forward ahead, we've got the prophets over and over and over calling out to the nation of Israel to welcome in as their own the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Sometimes it says sojourner. Sometimes it says foreigner. Sometimes it says alien. One might even say immigrant into the community. But even while that's going on, even though we see the seeds of this welcoming and this hospitality and God's uh, ultimate and intended goal of bringing restoration and shalom or harmony to the whole of the world, all too often in our accounts of the nation of Israel, what's happening is uh, they're encouraging an us versus them mentality. A type of tribal national identity that was probably very appropriate for its context and for its time. I watch this sometimes with Roby. Roby's with someone and Roby has a toy or something. And Roby's at the age where almost all of us universally were, I'm sure. Where a toy is expected perhaps to be shared with a sibling or someone else. And the response is, mine! I don't have any kids, but I've been able to watch and witness a lot. And Jeff and Jody handle this well. But what we forget sometimes is we want everyone to share things before they actually feel it's their own. For me to actually be able to give you something freely as a gift, I first have to have possession of it and understand that it's mine. And so we have to think about the people of Israel, God's chosen As kind of a show glass nation of what this means if God is with the people. Before God can just shower God's love on everyone in a way that they'll understand. There has to be a demonstration of what that means for a people to actually be known by, loved by. And to also return that to Yahweh. And so while this might have been helpful at certain times for them to be able to establish this tribal identity. Jesus is fast forward thousands of years at a place in history where he's able to say we need to move beyond the us and them and understand that we're all in this together and that our heavenly father who loves us all and wants to welcome us all into reconciliation, harmony and shalom. Now, again, we're not going to get super into this right now. But here are a few instances that you might want to examine more thoroughly in order to grasp Jesus's radical reconstitution of what is the family of God in contrast to biological and tribal identities that we were all birthed into. So if you want to jot some stuff down to look at peruse later, this might be the time. You might start right at the beginning in the Gospel of Matthew with Matthew's genealogical account of Jesus. In other words, Jesus' ancestors. Where I'm from in Alabama, Jesus' kin. All right. Let's look who gets recounted in that passage. Go back and look through that. Look for people who should not be there. In a genealogy at that particular point in time, women are not typically referred to. And yet, in this account, Matthew gives us four women who were ancestors of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, what's interesting about them is that here in the very, this is who Jesus springs from, are women, duh, but women who are, A, foreigners, As in Rahab and Ruth. And women who don't share the most sterling pedigrees. As in Tamar and Bathsheba. And Rahab and anyway. (laughs) But the point is, is even at the beginning, Jesus is starting. uh, We're we're seeing in Jesus' story that this gospel, this kingdom is bigger than just who's supposed to be there. So you may want to look at that. You also want to look at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus definitively states that God is on the side of the poor and the marginalized. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we've talked about that, and somehow, in our time, what we've made the poor in the spirit, what we've made that to be is about a certain type of attitude. Well, we just need to be uh, humble and 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 understand this, but that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was directly contradicting the social stigma of his day. You see, the poor were not blessed by God because they were poor because God chose them to be poor. God's favor and God's love was with the rich and the wealthy and the prosperous. It was evident. Look, they're prospering. God loves them. Look, they're a leper. God must not love them. And what Jesus says in this radical manifestation, in this radical manifesto of the kingdom of God is... When you're poor, when you're despised, when you're lowly, guess what? God is with you on your side. And that's our hope. And we know that further because it gets to the point where Jesus says, Hey, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The pharisaical way of understanding things was what I just explained. Blessed equals uh, God. Lowly equals God's disfavor. Jesus is saying we've got to get past that. Another instance that you might look at is uh, Jesus' reading of the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue upon the inauguration of his public ministry. You probably know this, Jesus has been baptized, Jesus goes to the wilderness, Jesus shows up, it says he's at the synagogue, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, he reads from it, this is the day of the Lord. He talks about it, he sits down and everybody marvels, ooh, ah, who is this, Joseph's son? How did he come to such great knowledge? Well, to be true, that's how we've read it. But that's not the case of what was really going on there. We have translations that say they marveled, but that's not really the best translation of that. Uh, The King James actually has the best translation of this, oddly enough, and it says that they considered what he said. It's very neutral. Here's what happened. It's not that Jesus said something that they didn't know before when he read this passage. Everyone would have known that passage out of Isaiah. In fact, that passage is basically our John 3.16. If the Israelites played football, which they wouldn't because they couldn't touch pigskin, but if they played football, (laughs) right, then somebody would have been holding up that passage from Isaiah because this was an oppressed people who were excited about the day of the Lord coming when they were going to be freed. And Jesus reads that. But what Jesus does and what Paul does later on, go back and look at it, is Jesus leaves part of it out. And the part Jesus leaves out is the part where the oppressors get paid back For their oppression. And he sits down. Instead of them being amazed. At what he said. They are amazed by what he hasn't said. And the response we should read. Should actually be more. Who is this? Is this not Joseph's son? We know that because. As that follows. Jesus then. Knows what is going on in their reaction. And Jesus cites. Two accounts of God's favor on foreigners. He talks about the widow who the prophet comes along and the miracle happens that feeds her son. And then he talks about the foreigner Naaman being healed of leprosy. And at this point they take him and they go to kill him and throw him off a cliff. So if we read it with eyes, what's happening here, eyes that are open to see, Jesus is already upsetting his tribalistic people who are very much us versus them because he's saying, God is getting ready to do something and open this thing wide up for all of us to enjoy. And before we get too upset about that, we should realize most of us in this room are the we. Who God let in, the Gentiles. (laughs) We should be happy about this radical message. We don't get it because we've been a Christian nation for so long and a part of Christendom for so long, but we're the outsiders that the Jews didn't want in. Thank God. Thank Jesus that this was said. Not only that, but Jesus is challenged to loyalty to family through the calling of his disciples. In Matthew 4, his refusal to let the one desiring to be a disciple return to bury his father. And his prediction that in the coming persecutions, brother will deny brother and father's will rise up against their children. And children will put their parents to death. In chapter 10, these are all things that Jesus is challenging The standard or conventional understanding of what family is. Jesus is now reconstituting a new body politic by saying that his true family are the disciples. And that this was ever uttered is indeed a radical thing that moves us beyond just what we're born into. And moves us instead into the family that we are being called into. Now, that is not to deny our responsibilities and our allegiances and loyalties to our biological families. It is simply a prioritization as to where our ultimate loyalty lies to. If we call ourselves by the name Christian, if we claim to follow the rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus. Jesus bids us to leave all to come to him. Now again, that simply means that before I am an American, I am a Christian. Before I am a Hewitt, my surname, I am a follower of Jesus. And As a follower of Jesus, please understand, that should make me the best American I can be and the best Hewitt that I can be. If I'm loving Jesus the way I can and the way I'm instructed, following closely the demonstration and example that he set for me, then I'll be Among the best of citizens that I can be. And I will be the best son I can be to my dad. And the best brother I can be to my sister. This isn't easy. It isn't easy in times like these. But it's what we have. So now that we see that Jesus has called us to be a part of this newly constituted body politic, now that we know that we're part of the family of God, we must turn our attention to what our family values are and how we are to act, how we are to live out those values in the world. And this is where I want us to spend the remainder of the day because this is what's going to help us navigate this week and our lives to come. Uh, I love this state. I can't tell you how much joy it brings me to drive to Asheville every day and back. My wife can tell you, I hate cars. I hate to drive. But every hill, every mountain, every tree brings me love. I, I, I said to a friend as I was driving up from Florida to here, it was like little pieces of me that had scattered We're slowly being knit back together by being in these mountains. I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that. And I see a lot of it. Uh, Sometimes more than I anticipate. For instance, the other night, leaving the brewery that I'm working at now with my friend from Asheville. I know once I get on the road to Bryson City, exit 27 is the exit I take. 27, then 67, and I'm there. That's what I'm supposed to do. And I'm at mile marker 33, and my dad calls. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. Dad calls, and I say, Dad, please, whatever we do, I implore you. I use that word, I implore you, Father. Let's not talk politics. To which my dad says. Son. All right. But just answer me this one question. <laughs> I look up all of a sudden. What seems just an instant later. And I'm surrounded by 18 wheelers. And I'm going through a tunnel. And I'm like I'm almost a Tennessee. Tennessee. And if you've ever made that mistake, there's nowhere to turn around. <laughs> I know these are difficult times <laughs> to get along. And so I'm not speaking to you as someone who has it all together. But what I am saying is if we're going to to figure out how to live as a family in the family of God, we need to understand what our family is about. And the best way I know to examine that. Is who is our daddy? Who is our father? That's your daddy. That's not my daddy. But <laughs> she went him. <laughs> who is our heavenly father? <laughs> and what does it look like? And if we, we look at God. Then we need to look at God through Jesus' eyes. I take you back to Matthew again. Earlier in this book. To the what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our father... Right in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Now, in this portrayal of the Heavenly Father by Jesus, understanding who our Father is. There are some important things that Jesus shows us. Our Father in Heaven. Now, when we talk about our Father in Heaven, when we think about that, often we'll go heaven up, hell down, we're in the middle. Now, we know that's not the case, right? Or else Australia would be hell or something like that, okay? I haven't been there, I don't know. Um, But the point is, for the Jews... The Jewish people didn't see up and down. They saw the flesh realm, the earthly realm, the realm of humans being in the same place as the spiritual realm of angels and of demons. There was a membrane that basically you couldn't see what was happening, but it was right here. So when they're saying our father who art in heaven, they're not saying our father who's far off. They're actually saying our father who's right here. So when we read this, we see that God, our Father, is near. Hallowed be your name, set apart, reverenced, holy. God is pure. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God who is purposeful, who has a mission and an intention for our family. Our family doesn't just exist to be, it exists to do as well. Give us this day our daily bread, our Father who is a giver of gifts. And forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, a God who forgives, a Father who pardons. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one, a Father who is protective. So this is our dad, a dad who is near, a dad who is pure, a dad who is power and purpose powerful and purposeful a father who gives and provides a father who pardons and a father who protects and that's who we're supposed to be like our father so to boil that down this is what i want to share with you four statements okay That I think if we can burn these into our brain, at least for these next couple of days, it'll take us a long ways. And I actually got them. I want to say that an angel visited me in the basement of the helpman's and said, These are the four statements I want you to give to the Grove. It didn't happen. (laughs) Um, Instead, I was listening to NPR. All right, (laughs) And I was listening to StoryCorps. If you hadn't checked it out, you ought to check it out. But in it, there was a guest on this, Dr. Ira Bayak, who is an international leader in palliative care, and hospice care. Basically, he's written a book and he spends his time telling us how to talk to people. What matters most is what the name of the book is called. That they will know how we feel about them before they transition, before they pass. And he says, these are the four things that we should all say and we should all hear. One, I love you. If we're a part of the family of God, our first language has to be love. Love over and over and over again is what God speaks to God's creation. It is the ultimate. God is love. John tells us. So we have to be about love. The second thing is. Thank you. We have to be a people who understand. That our father gives. Provides so much for us. And that we have to be a people. Who live lives of gratitude. It's very easy in this world. To hear what you don't have. And to let that be your default mechanism. I don't have it. I don't have enough. I don't have what she has. I don't have what he has. We want to discuss. Buy me a cup of coffee sometime. Give me four hours. And let's talk about Ray Gernard's. Uh, Gerard's mimetic theory. And his scapegoat uh, atonement theory. Alright. We'll go for days on that. But the idea is just simply this. We want what other people have. You take two little kids and you put them in a room with thousands of dollars of toys. What's the most valuable toy? The one the other one picks up and has. It could be the box. It doesn't matter. We want what other people have. And so many times we have this poverty mentality. When we don't understand that we don't need the biggest TV. Step outside and look at these dang mountains. Better yet, turn to your partner, your spouse, your child, your parent, your friend. Look them in the eye and see what gift God has given you in that person. We have to be thankful. Thank you. The third and fourth statement are related. The third one is this. Forgive me. We have to understand that our lives should be full of humility because we're wronging people and we're breaking relational ties and trust all the time. If you don't think that you need to say, forgive me for anything, well, let's start with repenting of pride. Because uh, <laughs> this is the first rule of theology. God is God and I'm not. <laughs> right? And so we have to figure that out. And we have a father who forgives so much. Consider these various metaphors scripture uses for forgiveness. God doesn't reckon sin, wrote the Apostle Paul, echoing the psalmist. Romans 4 and 8, Psalm 32. We incur debt, but God puts nothing in the debt column of our life's account. We owe, but we don't have to pay. God covers sin. Psalm, One second. Psalm 32 uh, and Romans 4. We've sinned in plain sight of all, but God hides our sin under the cover of impenetrable obscurity. We've committed it, but it's nowhere to be found. God puts our wrongdoing behind God's back. Isaiah 38:17 says this. God looks at us, the wrongdoers, and doesn't see our wrongdoing because one can't see what is behind one's back. As Soren Kierkegaard says of God's hiding of our sin. God removes our transgression from as far as the east is from the west. Think about that. You have a north and a south pole, but you don't have an east-west pole. It goes on for infinity. So he removes it as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, our transgression seems to be permanently stuck to us, but God gently removes it without harming us and takes it to a place, place that neither we nor anybody else could ever reach. God blots out our sin, Isaiah 43. We've spilled ink on our new white outfit, but God makes it disappear as if it were a drop of water on a hot stone in the middle of a sunny summer day. God sweeps away our sins like mist, Isaiah 44 says. At the dawn of a new day, the landscape of our soul is enveloped in the cold, thick, wet mist of our nightly fallings and failings. But then the sun of God's forgiveness comes up. The mists are gone and all we see is the spectacle spectacular beauty of a wintry day with surfaces of snow and water dancing at the touch of the sun's countless rays. And then miracle of miracles, God doesn't even remember our sins. Isaiah 43 and 25, Jeremiah 31, 34, and if that weren't enough, New Testament, Hebrews 8, 12, 10, and 17, they're just gone. Gone from reality and they're gone from memory. So if God, our Father, forgives us Than to be like our father. We forgive. So first of all. We say I love you. Second of all. We say thank you. Third of all. We say forgive me. And as a result of that. We say I forgive you. Listen. This week. If you can at all. With your family. With your friends. Who agree with you. Who disagree with you. If you can just start. With I love you. Liz, you can come on up. But if, if you can just say to yourself, if Gramps, <laughs> if, if Sonny Boy, as my dad still refers to me, this is my Sonny Boy. That's I'm 42 years old. Um, but anywhere we go. If, if you can just put in your mind, the one thing that I want my family and my friends and those who I spend this day with To remember or to feel when I get in the car and leave, is she really loves me. He really loves me. Not our differences, not where we're at. They love me. And then, if they can sense and remember from you, if you leave a fragrance in their house smelling of thankfulness, thank you for welcoming me in, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being my family. Thank you for being my friends. Thank you for being fair. Thank you that in spite of our differences, I know we're one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Say it often. Too much. And then start with the posture of humility, forgive me. You know what? It's been a contentious year now. I probably said something probably posted some things that might have upset you, that might have hurt you. May or may not have been my intention, but here's the deal. Just in case, forgive me. Now, if you know you've screwed up and you know you've wronged them, name it. I'm sorry I did this. But even if you don't know a particular instance, it's not bad. Search my heart oh God. See if there be any wicked way in me. You know what? If I've offended you or anything, just Forgive me. And then, if it's someone who's done you wrong, and listen, I'm not pretending that this happens overnight, that this is something that can go away when someone's truly, truly hurt you, especially people who are supposed to protect and love you. And often that's the case with family. But start the process of saying, I forgive you. I may not feel all of that right now. (laughs) I'm going to have to grow into that forgiveness more. But I just need you to know. As our Heavenly Father loves me and has forgiven me. I am committed to the process of forgiving you. If we can do that. We'll heal a lot of things. And the food. And the fellowship. And the football. Will be a lot sweeter. Stand your feet if you will. They're going to lead us in a couple of songs.